Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited, conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. Appreciate you all joining us. We're going to dive into the topic a little more today on kind of outfitter reform and what some of this stuff looks like. Uh, We've got a cool guest with us outside of our footprint, so it'll be nice to see a little bit of the other side of the fence. Uh, Brent, uh, thanks for joining again today, and you want to tell them who we got? Yeah, we got uh, a buddy of mine that we met about, I I would say it's probably about 10 years ago, somewhere in that range anyway. Um, Originally attracted to him through, I think it was through Greenhead, you know, looking for photographers because at the time he was doing quite a bit of work for Nat Gear, Natural Gear, however you want however you want to claim that brand name um and had done a ton of work for them and so uh you know he had a big library of arkansas duck hunting images so we got to talking and then we figured out you know we had some other background stuff that lined up um you know he played college baseball at wichita state so we had a baseball connection he uh, even left-handed pitcher so had come so we had all these things that started to align a little bit and then we shared a lot of the same thoughts and theories and everything else on ducks and so we we've stayed in communication over all this time and he's coming come here and hunted with me the standard sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors i've always been a fan of yeti coolers and their drinkware now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box uh brent did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now i did i've been a big fan of the 30 uh i actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one and then i've got another one that i use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when it hadn't rained in a while. It's an amazing product. Yeah, so I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the, the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box so i've got all the kids ammo gauge reducers hand warmers whatever they're going to need in one box and all i've got to do is grab it and i'm ready to take them out in the woods yeah the yeti go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized accessible and protected and it's no matter what size you pick it's a must-have for waterfowl season tom beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, 
canvas, and leather bags, and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com, in their Birmingham, Alabama, and Wilson, Arkansas stores, and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Uh, he was the one that I referenced a couple episodes ago that that took the image of uh, of Rick Ramsey in that timber hole in the snow with the big cowboy hat on that made the made the Grand Prairie book that was such a cool oh, pick. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, Drew took that picture um, and uh, was there for those adventures because that was a that was a rough weather weekend for for Arkansas. But uh, but yeah, so I, our guest today is is uh, Drew Palmer. He's a Got his hands in all kinds of things. He's a former outfitter, kind of in the in the Kansas area. Grew up in Arkansas City, Kansas, which is pretty close to Oklahoma, if you know where, well, know where all that is. But um, he's doing some some real estate now, and and he's still doing photography and video work because that's one of his true skills. But uh, Drew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I I I no joke. I got the goose pimples and the chill bumps when you talked about that that image of uh. Mr. Ramsey and I, I kind of laughed because all I could think about was you pulling me aside and saying, "Now, you might want to be pretty quick on the trigger today because I don't think this is going to last long." And we had just talked to Jimbo, like, "Hey, we got to get a bunch of these awesome images or whatever else." And about seventeen pictures later, in fifteen minutes, he was like, "Hey, we need one more duck." <laughs> that was it. That was that, uh, was, that was epic. We got that one good one, that, and that was uh, I got that thing framed in my my man cave at my folks' little farmhouse. Yeah, super cool, super cool. Well, why don't you, you know, maybe expand on your background just a little bit, and then, um, you know, I thought, or Casey and I both thought that it would be good to, like Casey mentioned, expand on this this outfitter reform that we took on related to Arkansas. So, you know, our listener base obviously is a lot got a lot of Arkansas um, uh, you know, centric uh, audience, but I think it's good for for others to hear what's going on in other states and see that some of our issues are issues that other states are encountering but uh we'll get into that in a second why don't you just expand a little bit more on on you and then we'll jump into it perfect yeah um you know i'm i'm 31 now and i've been waterfowl hunting since i was i think five they started taking me just to a local salt marsh and duck club and then my dad um of course you know we live in the the flint hills and cali county where i grew up and my dad, you know, second, third generation outdoorsman. And, you know, of course, you think about Kansas 30, 40 years ago, just very minimal competition. Hell, I don't even think we opened up out-of-state hunting until the 90s. Um, so, you know, kind, kind of a, a dream, so to say, for a lot of people in that generation back when. But just started, he started taking me, uh, you know, pond jumping. We'd go hit all these little cattle tanks um, if people aren't familiar with what that is, you know, you kind of just crawl over the back of a pond dam and there's six mallards on a pond and, you know, you take a couple shots at those and then you move on to the others. And, you know, the pond hopping gets a bad name because people kind of associate that with like roost. But in our area, there might be 20,000 cattle tanks in a county. And obviously a lot of those have four to 10 ducks on them. You're not going to hunt those, right? But it makes just for probably the best youth interaction you can get with the sneaking around the dam and the buildup and everything else. And that's, that's how I started. And I, um, kind of evolved from there into 
turkey hunting at a really young age and then deer hunting, bow hunting, you know, Kansas, you used to have to be 12 years old before you could get your bow hunter safety. Um, but my dad, my uncle and my grandpa got me into it. And I just, I fell in love with, you know, the baseball deal, the, the ranching deal. My grandpa was a horse farrier. So we just had a lot of good contacts, you know, just in the, the wide open prairie in the country. And just back in the good old days, it was really just call somebody up on the landline or stop in at the coffee shop and, you know, he's pretty much free to roam. And so those childhood times were, I wish I would have known then what it was going to be like now. That's for damn sure. Well, talk a little bit about just kind of the evolution of waterfowling in Kansas. Uh, you mentioned some stuff there that I really want to hit on. But uh, for those of us who aren't real familiar with with how it's evolved there, talk a little bit about those details going back, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Um, you know, we're not all that different when you look at like the big scope of things. We're not all that different than how it's kind of evolved everywhere else. The main thing I think people have to understand, kind of sp- uh, spending a lot of time in Arkansas with Brent and with, with John Adams and those guys, um, we don't have the cultural integration or cultural interaction for any outdoor sport in Kansas maybe besides pheasant hunting in those days kind of came to a halt in the 2012 drought. I mean, they're still in it like, Oh, Kansas is the premier destination of pheasant hunting, but like it's so molested and beat down and we've had bad hatch and everybody's double crop farming. So the habitat's just tanked. But um, the main thing to understand is that, Kansas is just a nomadic thing. Like when you hunt in Kansas, you probably aren't seeing people. You're not seeing other people scouting. There's just this massive, vast expansion of ground and country. And the duck hunting deal is also not like Arkansas in that the our birds will move to safety and security and they may spend the whole season on a deer lease now that no one can even see them and there's 10,000 mallards on a 20 acre watershed they're feeding in the pasture on little cow ponds during the day then they get up they fly straight up into the air to 2,500 feet or more to where you wouldn't believe them if you saw them and then they fly straight to a feed field in the middle of nowhere and straight down and so the dynamic, the, the dynamics are way, way different. Um, but we don't have the cultural aspect that's drastically different than anything in the South. We really don't have, I know of like two hunting clubs within 200 miles. Um, oh, wow. So, the, you know, the structure and the integrity of actually how people participate in the heritage or in the sport is drastically different. And then from a a real estate and property and land access thing, you know, Kansas is like in the 40th out of 48 lower states in public hunting acres. It's, it's 99% private. Like the public hunting thing is minimal slash not even a conversation for waterfowl other than maybe a dozen or two dozen state managed wetland areas across the state. We'll, we'll probably get into all that stuff later, but 
So opportunity is this largely private. Um, and the, the waterfowl thing in terms of how they migrate, there's a lot of differences. Um, we, we kind of get three different migrations. Whereas, you know, in like Arkansas, you kind of get your calendar birds and then maybe some freeze line birds or something, you know, or I guess if you want to get in the weeds, you know, you guys have done a good job of interviewing these biologists and stuff. We've kind of learned that those freeze line birds may have already been there and they're just having to move around. And so we're seeing concentrations now. Um, So it. The main thing people need to understand is just the the cultural difference between Kansas and Arkansas from a proximity standpoint, I guess you might call it that, um, largely nomadic. And, you know, Kason, I think you had asked what it was like 20 and 30 years ago. So I kind of, I cut, I cut my teeth on those farm ponds. Um, and it still is realistically the same out there. You'll never see anyone else hunting. I might run into one or two local high school kids, you know, taking three dozen decoys to a farm pond and a layout blind. Um, so like the hunting pressure is probably evaluated differently. We're not seeing boats at the ramp or whatever else. Now, if you're at lakes, yes, obviously, because everybody's condensed down to these minuscule areas across a ton of pressure right but you know in, in a se- in a section i'm just going to say i'm thinking about a certain section and in the county that i live in i hunt the biggest watershed and then the other proximity small cattle ponds that are all about an acre i'll probably hunt those i'll hunt that big watershed about three times a year and then i'll hunt those proximity ponds another four to five times a year and in that section there will never be another hunter and there will never be another hunter hit the brakes and drive by there. And we manage probably, I say manage, manage hunting pressure on two to 3000 ducks that have historically stayed in that area for a decade. Um, So that, let me me ask you this, you know, you talked about the cultural differences with, with Arkansas, which, you know, we, we obviously really have leveraged our, history and you know duck hunting capital world all all those you know kind of you know monikers that go with with what people perceive and see arkansas to be but we've also we've also made significant efforts in the state habitat wise you know specifically pointed towards waterfowl is any of that going on in kansas or are ducks just and i'm talking about private or public and and because there's there in this in Arkansas, there's two different efforts, um, but there we're we're trying to catch up on habitat because we're we've we've let it slip a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we have a gazillion acres of rice field, but not many, you know, not as many as there used to be are set up where a duck can find some value out of it. So, in Kansas, habitat wise, are, are they just ducks are relying on crops that were cut and and farm ponds that catch a little water or these watersheds that catch some water, or is there a, is there a pointed effort besides some of the, you know, maybe some of the bigger, bigger clubs or bigger outfitters, you know, doing much habitat wise? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think kind of with some real estate experience, the easiest way to describe that is if there was a hundred acres, ducks are using 
99 private acres to 1%. And it's probably honestly like 99 and a half private acres to the 1% public. The thing to realize that to understand too about Kansas is probably, I don't know if you guys looked at that kind of that little spreadsheet of how I broke down the, you know, the zones and those aren't our regs and law zones. Those are just kind of the, the flyways and how they work, but probably only 30%. That's not even 30%. It's, it's 15 or 20% of the state is susceptible to water ponding or the soil holding water. So obviously that's a crucial part in having a wetland, right? A lot of our slopes and soils drain incredibly fast. I think all your guys, um, you know, that deal with property development down there and you guys have some great private individuals doing it. Um, they'll tell you, you know, like if you've got more than 15 or 20% sand in the soil, you probably want to stay away from this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you just can't hold water. So in Kansas, you know, Cheyenne bottoms is largely our biggest wetland and it was formed from natural glacier recession, thousands, millennia, however long, you know, what term you want to put over that. But the the slope the slopes of the soil are largely runoff based in Kansas, and then also the uh, the ponding capability. You know, a lot of our soil um, drains very very good. So, just in a lot of areas, it's just not possible to go back out to Grandpa's back forty level um, terrain and level the land, plant millet or corn and levy it up. It, it's just not even. A, a possibility. So most of our habitat work is limited to the Eastern half of the state where it tends to behave more like the Mississippi flyway, more like the Mississippi Valley. Um, you know, and that's still West of the Ozark mountains, of course, but darker dirt, more clay in the soil, better compacting. And, um, but still, I mean, you're talking state wetlands projects, just minimal, minimal effort there no funding no it's largely a private deal and on the private deal i mean kind of everybody knows that's that's limited to your you know your one percent elite that are capable financially to go spend 30 grand in dirt work to do that yeah well that's what that's what we see here too um but you're starting to see and that's why i asked the question because i i believe we're starting to see at least in my area and and in my circles, and in case I may say the same, uh, you're starting to see smaller efforts, um, mainly because that's almost how you have to compete nowadays. Uh, you know, you know, we're adjacent to my particular my farm is adjacent to two waterfowl holding areas that are significant, and I will never ever ever compete with them. But I got to have something, and so we, you know, we've made some efforts to try to try to improve habitat. So you're seeing some smaller cells, smaller scale stuff here in Arkansas um, that aren't that, you know, that quote unquote 1% elite. Right. Right. And I, you know, from following both, like I'm a huge habitat geek and um, a lot of people ask, well, Hey man, what, what can I plant or what can I do? And I'm like, listen, if you don't have a gate or a flashboard riser to control water levels, planting floodable stuff in Kansas in a non-controllable impoundment, realistically, they're just wasting money. So what I have really tried to encourage people is like, hey, I know everybody wants to kill kill ducks, but 
if you can go take the tiller and mow down and burn down two and three acres next to your pond in your watershed and go plant that to rye and wheat, you're going to have more geese there than you can ever imagine. Cause that's like the ideal thing for a goose to loaf on. And when you attract all the geese, the ducks will come. And so that's just kind of a, a wild card that we've been able to do on a lot of places. And it'll take a watershed from, uh, you know, killing two dozen geese a year, the guys killing 150, 200 geese a year off of it. Yeah. Wow. Do you, is it still, is Kansas still, um, you know, a situation where you can drive around, scout, go knock on a door and get permission or is, is all that been gobbled up? Oh, I mean, it, yes, yes and no. Um, 10 years ago, I could have went to just rural random towns. And I guess I should say that with like, it's almost become an art form at learning how to talk to farmers on the doorstep. Like if you go there with the collared shirt and the jacked up truck, you know, that these young kids like to drive and the flat bill, like boys, it's not happening. Like that guy don't like the looks of you. But if I go up to the door with a golden harvest hat on and, you know, uh, a Carhartt vest that I drug down the gravel road, like they're going to be more apt to talk to you. But by now the money thing has circulated. If you didn't know that person, or if I can't name drop them, they're just not very receptive. Um, the going rate up here is anywhere from a hundred to 150 a gun a day from outfitters. And they're hiring so many local high school kids that just want to be part of the cool club that, and they got eight, 10, 12 trucks on the road at night. Like yeah. they know what my truck looks like and they're going to follow me. And they've told them to do that. So it, it's changing to put it that way. We're seeing that same kind of deal. We're seeing the same thing with, you can't do that with ducks here. I mean, it's everything, right. everything's taken leased or yeah. owned, or they don't want you on it. We are starting to see it with speckle belly geese. Uh, the number of outfitters exploded and that that's how they operate. Uh, ride roads, find out who owns it, find out their cell phone number and see if you can get it. And the split's about the same, very similar to what you were saying, 100, 150. It's usually about half, half of whatever they're charging. They'll split it. Well, and, and something else too, I think to understand is like, um, you know, we have caused this problem ourselves, like on X maps single-handedly created this um, because anybody can download a smartphone you know, 10 years ago, I had $300 worth of plat map books in my truck. Um, and you had to know how to go to the co-op. And if they don't like you, they, they probably just ain't going to give you one or let you buy one. Like, I mean, that's, that was a deal, you know, or you could go to the County and you had to know who to talk to the County and hope they were in the box under this desk. I mean, whatever, but, um, we have lowered the barrier of entry that has definitely led to a lot of these problems. The The other thing though, is like in Kansas, you can't, you, you can't decide. There's not very many year long leases. Like I, I know of several places where there's like three or four 10 acre watersheds. I mean, pretty big body of water, right? Obviously most of it's so deep. You can't wait it, but there's three or four watersheds in a four or five mile area. And those birds will calendar and historically use one of them. And those other three, 
I have paid money for, I've door knocked, I've got on them. And for whatever rhyme or reason, they just won't touch them. And hmm. you, I don't know the recipe of what or why I kind of have a general idea. I think a theory, but largely if you're going to find ducks here in any kind of concentration, you're going to have to, I mean, it's a tank of gas. Like it is a ton of driving. The scouting is a integral learned skill. Um, so many huge tracts of land you can't see in the bottom of it. You got to know when to get to a high point with a spotting scope. And I've got high points that I can glass 20 miles in either direction. And if I see a big spin, if I'm wanting a goose hunt, if I see a big spin, I mean, it's pedal to the metal. It's a rally race to get there before everybody else. And that's not everywhere. You, you mentioned scouting there. I mean, and I'll tell a bit of our background here. I mean, I'm convinced that we've done it to ourselves with social media. Look around at our neighbors, especially on the goose side that want to that want to back up to us and hunt next to us. It's only because of social media that we know that they know we're out here. Um, how is, 100%. has that affected Kansas the same way? I mean, are people, you don't have to scout the same way anymore. You just scout the internet. Well, yes, yeah, yes and no. And I'll tell you, so I, I did it like everybody else. I, I did have good mentors that would have put their foot up my rear end had I done dumb stuff with photos, you know, like cigarettes and the bill of gee. I mean, just a lot of ignorant stuff, right? You see, you guys have all seen it. But I had some mentors early on that was like, you know, don't you be showing that water tower in the background. Like I'm hunting outside of township and this guy calls me every time the geese get on the wheat and he's like, you better get up here. There's thousands. Well, I mean, you just go crush them 10 years ago, one day a week. I mean, is this a guaranteed you want to go hunt the, the hilltop under the water tower? I mean, you just show up on Friday morning or Saturday morning and then it, you shoot your 36 and go home. Um, but it definitely has changed when I was outfitting. Um, I quickly realized other outfitters across the state would send people to my area to look for a truck or, you know, you just see them on the road. Well, they were sending them to the most obvious places like go sit on this little hundred acre reservoir, go sit. And I'm like, you know, I go pull up to them in a little beat down Chevy pickup that's got no stickers on it. I'm like, I play dumb. You know, I'm like, hey, what's going on? Are you looking for geese? Oh, yeah. Well, sometimes you'd get the ignorant kid. Yep. I work for so-and-so outfitters. And I'm like, dang, you guys are a long way from home. What are you doing down here? And then they get kind of red ghost-faced. And they're like, uh, my boss told me to come look for this guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, because, I mean, there's no territories here. And that guy's cash money to a farmer is kind of the same as mine. And it definitely snowballed rapidly to where, I mean, we're still killing them and it'll never see the light of day on social media. Yeah. Yeah. What well, do you, do you associate, you know, this rise? I mean, obviously, and we, you and I have talked about it and, and we've even done a podcast on it that, that, you know, this, and it was our, you know, whether Arkansas was still the duck capital of the world episode. And, you know, we talked about, whether there was a shift in numbers, um, you know, because if, if Arkansas's numbers are down, then, then 
you know, there was a theory that the flyway has shifted west, despite there are no, there's no transmitter data to, to back that up. There's no banding data, uh, you know, harvested bands to back that up. You know, birds that were banded in Arkansas are all of a sudden being killed in Oklahoma. Now, yeah, few or Kansas, few maybe, but but not not enough to justify a flyway shift. But it, but Kansas and Oklahoma got have have all of a sudden have this reputation that it's the most unbelievable place on the planet to kill ducks. Now, both of those places have killed ducks for a long, long, long time. But but the branding now is so much stronger and and whether it's perception or whatever, but it, that has to be 99.9% tied to social media. Yeah, I mean if if you want my honest opinion, I think you can trace this back to one guy that promoted it from Missouri that was like, oh, this guide life is the coolest thing in the world. I'm making all this money. We built this yeah. massive imp-. you know, so that that everybody wanted to join the cool kids club. Like it I guess what it created was a subculture. And then, I mean, it, if we're being honest, like what we're doing is no different than the dang drug mafia. I mean, it's a cash transaction for a, a cert. I mean, it works the same way. <laughs> like if you've yeah. watched, <laughs> if you've watched Narcos, like it's the same stuff out here. Um, I, I think social media, what it did was it gave everyone a metric in likes and follows to justify what they deemed as success and then get recognition for it. Like if you took social media away, I'll tell you right now, I think 50% of our hunting base is gone. Yeah. I think it's that, I think it's that much. And, you know, you got these other subcultures that are promoting the let's take 20 guys and hunt out of the rags and silhouettes. Like, and you, you get chose fired up about this. Where are those birds ending up? Because I can tell you where they're ending up. And some of your biggest outfitters are your biggest culprits of that. Like those kids live in their mom's basement. They're not taking home 64 geese that their buddies don't like. Everybody knows where that discussion ends up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that I just, me from like, I, you know, and you guys have seen this too, but it's a little different in that I used to be able to run around and never hear a gunshot for weeks at a time. And like now if I pull into a Casey's parking lot, I'm like looking around and like, okay, who's going to recognize me here and who's following my vehicle. Wow. Like, and that, that, that <laughs> happened in 10 years. Like that's how fast it happened. And, um, I, I have actually had an outfitter hunt a property that I had permission on and did so knowing that I wasn't going to hunt it for two more days, but they went and hunted it under the pretense that the farmer knew I just had blanket permission. But that's how bold and brazen these guys are. Man. And that's one of your biggest, most well-known outfitters in Kansas that did, that did it. What, what, uh, yeah, well, that, I mean, that's interesting. Um, you know, we don't, we just don't have the same situation here, you know, be able to compete like for land like that other than chasing speckle bellies because there's so much ground um, in East Arkansas that you can't hunt a duck on 
doesn't hold water. They won't flood it. They don't want to, they don't want to flood it, but you know, geese will get on it. And so it's, I mean, and that's becoming a huge, huge chunk of business. A lot of these guys have left the duck guy game. That's right. And now just hunt, hunt the white fronts. And it's, it's, it's because of that. And they don't, I mean, their, their, their overhead is literally nothing. Um, after you pay for your trailer and your decoys, um, I don't know. It's just, it, it we can align. That's the only way we're only really situation you've talked about so far that, that we really align on because ducks, ducks are night and day as far as how that's handled here versus over there. Right. Yeah. I, I was going to say, Brent, like when you think about it here in Arkansas, the majority of your historic, you know, long-term duck outfitters, they own the property. You know, we're not talking about fly by night leases or, you know, the, the historic group. And there's not a lot of names on that list, but they're landowners. They develop habitat. You know, they're, they're putting in the effort and the work, but the man, the goose game is kind of nomadic and, and similar to kind of what Drew's talking about there. Yeah, exactly. So what are, what are some of the requirements? I, mean, I know we, we just did an episode, you know, on outfitters here. We don't even have an outfitter system. We just have a guide's license. If you live in the state of Arkansas and pay $25, you're in, that's all you need. So tell us, uh, what does it take to run an outfit in Kansas? If you can pass a hunter safety course, you can be an outfitter in Kansas. <laughs> There's not even a $25. <laughs> Nothing. Wow. And so I, that's I told a, you guys, that's this... beyond your normal hunting license. Just no. Normal hunting license. <laughs> that's it. Mm. But what's crazy is like, you know, you, you hear of people like getting raided by the feds and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's some other things at like the federal level that you can get net. Like if you don't have proof of paying landowners or open like written commercial ex- like permission, right? Hell, they can pursue you in like federal court um, at levels that our state doesn't even advise as possible. Like mm. that, that's how I got to be careful with my words, but, that's how unorganized this whole circus is out here. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you could be an illegal alien and pass a hunter safety course under a fake name and be an outfitter working for cash. Yeah. And no one will question you. That's pretty wild uh, that, that it's that loose. I mean, we, you know, Case and I did quite a bit of research looking at some other states and and how they handle it. And of course, depending on the the game that they're chasing, you know, the big game states are are super strict and have all kinds of requirements. And then we have border, bordering states that don't have anything special either. I, I believe um, Texas might also be that way, where you don't have to have a special license. But what's interesting is to be a commercial fishing guide. You got all kinds of requirements, but, yeah. but, uh, you know, on the hunting side, no, uh, and ours is, ours is pretty easy to be. I think it's $25 to be a, if you're a resident to be a guide, which guide allows you to be an outfitter, no, no, no other qualification or a non-resident just went up this past season to 500 bucks. So <laughs> to like, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good example because out here, and I'm going to get this figure wrong, so I'll just say that up front. If you want to go put on a field trial for dogs competing for blue ribbons, okay, I think it costs like $500 to put this event on, and that's if you have like frozen dead birds, right? But if you want to go yeah. make half a million in cash, brother, you just need a hunting license. 
Like, I mean, mm. th- think of the logic behind that. Like, hey, my God, you got to watch out for them field trial dog boys there. Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. A lot but, of danger uh, there to field trial. Yeah, too. yeah, boy, they're competitive over those blue ribbons yeah. now. They're stealing That's a bunch right. of money from you. But I, I do have a question for Brent, and I'm glad you brought this up. Like, I've been pretty active and paying attention to how this thing is progressing. There's starting to be some people chirp with some really good ideas and presentations in Kansas, right? Like the tension is getting there. I mean, it, it's there. Residents, it's already at a boiling point. Like we're, we're, we're close to the slashing tires phase. Like it's the, anybody that hunts public land will tell you that a couple meetings ago, there was a guy that had a game warden list out how many armed threats he dealt with off of one wetland. And it was like staggering. So wow. it, the, the, the buildup is there, like the boiling pot, it's cooking. But all, all of our problems go back to access versus competition. And we have a committee that they get paid $120,000. They're appointed by the governor. Um, the question is, why would they be motivated? to do anything other than somewhat maintain the status quo of the revenue when this revenue monster is just increasing on its own. Like why would they be, most of them don't hunt and fish. Hell, we had four of them that lied about buying a hunting license at the last meeting. Guy pulled an open records request on them and said, yeah, you're lying. (laughs) What's your response? And then, you know, the mediator steps in. So, it we're in a bad spot. Like we're, we're in a legitimate bad spot from leadership, from data. I know I mentioned you guys in text before, like we don't even know how many non-resident waterfowl hunters there are per what they told me when I did an open records request. I mean, that seems like something so simple as sorting that in an Excel file of where the addresses from waterfowl permits are. And they're telling me that we don't have it. So, and that data, yeah, and that that kind of data is crucial, especially when you're trying to learn how to to deal with. First off, trying to keep your residents interested in the sport. Non-residents. We just passed yeah. a bill to limit non-resident hunting to public areas on a three-day period or whatever. Yeah, and, right. You know, the rumor on the street is the the commissioner that passed that had a personal agenda because he hunts a public wetland that's pounded. And just kicked her on through the process, you know, and that if they can't give me that data, what data did that guy have to make a rational law and regulation? The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. 
Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, Light Boots are guaranteed game-changers. Now available in youth sizes. Yeah, well, in in case and I both heard it and everybody hears it, there's a there's a perception in in Arkansas that our, our commissioners are also appointed by the governor. Uh, now, I, I will say ours have a significantly deeper background than the ones you're mentioning that the oh, yeah. forum didn't even hold hunting or fishing licenses. Night and they're, day difference. They're not that, uh, but there's a perception that they they're they're put on this commission and they're they do a bunch of self-serving business, um, which is, which is completely false. And I could, uh, there's even instances and in, in things I could bring up. I feel comfortable bringing up that are actually the opposite of self-serving, uh, for them. Right. Now, I'm not, not saying they all, they get everything right and, 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 and all that. Uh, so I'm not standing here saying, don't, don't say anything or don't have a dis, you know, different opinion than the commissioner. Cause you'd be wrong. Cause we all, we all have different opinions uh, and they probably got different opinions and they don't they can't even get it to a point where they can make it a reg or, or a rule um just because of the way it works but um ours i would never put ours in the category of self-serving and in fact i would put the current the you know the last handful of years the groups because we rotate one off one rotates off every year and so you get a new one you add a new one every year you drop one add one drop one add one and and these last handful of years i would even skew them more towards the opposite of self-serving uh, with some of the stuff th- that they've decided um, right or wrong. I'm not saying their decisions were right or wrong, but it definitely doesn't fall in the category of making it better for themselves. Cheap to go pursue every game the state has to offer. And, you know, no matter what the commission wants to do, their hands are tied and even raising license rates. You know, that's got to go through political channels to be approved and, Kind of the same as what Drew was saying. Why? Why would they want to do anything any different to upset you know that economic machine? It's similar in Arkansas. I don't think any politician wants to sign on to raising rates on in-state residents and then run for re-election. So the systems are kind of, I don't know. They're 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 not they're imperfect. I guess. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Considering we haven't, I don't think we've raised the a hunting license, a resident hunting license in Arkansas, and over. 30 it's 30 some odd years i can't remember it's it's that's how long it's yeah. been there's a significant portion of the hunting population has never seen a resident hunting license fee change right which is wild well and, and you know the, the same people that com, the same people that complain about access or public management or gtrs or all the work that's not going to get done the way they want it done are the ones that would bitch the loudest if they're licensed oh yeah, <laughs> yeah oh for yeah sure. They forget how they, these things have to get paid for somehow. Right. Well, let's uh, let's get back to the outfitters real quick because I had a couple other questions because I'm curious and how it aligns with us um, and what we're seeing. What's the what's the divide? If you know you, you got a percentage of resident outfitters and non-resident outfitters because we you we we've had a you know, an influx, especially with the geese, because the guys, you know, follow the geese up and down the flyway, coming and going. Um, definitely seen some 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 out of state entities with with ducks as well. What what does Kansas look like as far as that that divide? Well, um, it, it's tough to say 
guys because we have zero data, right? But, yeah. um, you know, gut feeling, paying attention, ear to the road kind of stuff. I think it's way more than what anyone has any indication in terms of like, let I, I, I'd say for the listeners, we should probably separate guide from outfitter and outfitter being the parent company guides, the actual people taking guests out in the field who work under an outfitter name. The, the guide itself is, I would say, largely non-resident, probably 50, 60 percent. The outfitter, the parent company that holds the LLC and probably writes checks if they do, you know, um, uh, it's I, I think it's more than you think. I think it's probably 35 percent in terms of just waterfowl. And it might be creeping up closer to 50. Um, I sent you guys kind of that rough spreadsheet or whatever, but there was a meeting and I won't say who it was with um, several months ago. And they met with a commissioner on the, on the board and they said, how many outfitters do you think are in the state of Kansas? And they said, Oh, oh yeah. You know, probably a couple dozen. And the guy, the person asking the questions just kind of laughed and said, there's two dozen in my County. Yeah. And they were blown away. And then that led to another discussion about you're, you're losing millions of dollars of cash under the table. And that, you know, that's probably in our conversation down the road, but I think it's way more. And the other thing that's dangerous about that is in that cluster of non-resident guides. I mean, it's big money rolling in and they don't play with the same pocketbook as what a local guy. And I've got a lot of respect for guys with a brick and mortar lodge on in the city limits that supports his local economy supports his local farmers. But dude, that guy's getting choked out at a rapid rate. You got these groups from Texas and I mean, there, you guys have seen it. You're a goose guide in West Texas. And then you got an Arkansas place and now you got a South Dakota place. And I mean, it's yeah. just, that's a dangerous cycle to me because you're catering to the 1% elitism to control 99% of access and the future of our sport that leaves 90% of the blue collar guy high and dry. Yeah. And that's definitely what's getting squeezed. Uh, same, same as here. I, I mean, and case and you, you, you guys both know this. I, I have to take a hard step back and I'll be the first to tell you, I made a decent amount of money taking paid hunters, but I didn't do it for a living. I had other, other, another skill set with the, with the video business and stuff, but I got started in it because it was a way for me to justify honestly to be out there for 120 days. And I enjoyed meeting those people. And then as time goes on, you get more and more bad apples and you get people undercutting you going to try and lease from my farmer. And I'm like, man, what a horrible taste in your mouth. And you got to step back and you get older, you have family, everything else. But I, I really sympathize. I, I try and speak when I work with businesses in the outdoor industry, like guys, we got to be thinking 10 years down the road because our heritage of this, you can't tell me that all these new social media kids that have jumped in to the seven stages of the hunter, they've jumped in at stage four and five and they're all about the most technical gear and killing like their retention is minimal. Five years from now when they have kids and they don't have a buddy that's doing all the scouting for them, they're not going hunting, guys. Like, those are false numbers to me. And 
we're we're giving away this land and this opportunity and that's a delicate situation with me being in real estate telling a landowner he doesn't deserve 1500 to hunt geese like <laughs> eh, yeah. kind of got to be careful with you know what i say there but i I sympathize with a guy that can afford to spend 200 bucks on a dozen decoys and a call to take his son and his cousin to go hunt a farm pond that he saw a hundred mallards on. And now he's got a farmer telling him, you owe me 150 a gun because somebody like we've, the elitism has trained and influenced like, I'm sorry, but that's not right. That's a resource that flies. The guy doesn't own it. And what are we doing with our hunting heritage? You're telling me that guy is going to go to public hunting in Arkansas or Kansas with his 10-year-old son and his cousin and create a quality experience? Yeah, it'd be tough. There's no shot. Yeah. There's yeah. no chance. So, I mean, two two things there, I, I think, on your, your retention deal, I think you're spot on, especially when you look at, you know, these younger outfitters and influencers, you know, when when real life settles in at a certain age, those guys are going to fade out. And, but they're right now you're, they're driving so much of what you see on social media. And then to your point there about, you know, leases and the cost of that, you know, you I, I can't ever blame a landowner for seeking income wherever he can find it. It's, you know, th- there's some bad sides to that and what it's done as far as being able to go hunt private, you know, knock on door, that kind of thing. But I can't I can't fault anybody there. It, it just is what it is, and there's no real good solution to that. You brought up something there when you mentioned public, though, that really we can make better, and, and we're not doing it. But that those guys aren't going to have the opportunity to to come with this ten year old son, go to Arkansas, and go have great success hunting public because the competition there is the same as the competition on private. So all the people that complain about private and the dollars there also make it just as hard to go hunt public. So it's really more, it falls on us, not falls on us as hunters, not as an outfitter or a public land hunter, just us in general. Like we don't police ourselves. And that's why we keep having these conversations about needing regulation or structure or whatever you want to call it, because we do a piss poor job of keeping ourselves in our own lane. Well, I think, I mean, you know, we've kind of talked about it. I think you, there's going to have to become either I know Lee has spoken on these symposiums and they're kind of a secluded kind of old Freemasons hidden backdoor meeting. Right. But, uh, it, when are we going to play offense with smart people as hunters? Cause we haven't done it for, for in my lifetime. I mean, I, I, I can't put my finger on something and say, I think maybe Iowa has with some paying farmers to leave grass and stuff. Um, but I mean, when are we going to play offense with smart minded people? I think we kind of all have pitched around the idea. Hey, we're the, the battle is access, right. And acreage and we're losing three times with to these big, huge commercial entities profiting off the resource cash under the table, baby, me or you, we don't, we don't get anything out of it. And I'm not the guy sitting here saying, oh, yeah, we need more taxes. We need more tax. But we damn sure could formulate with all the smart people we have in the outdoors a way to make it win for all sides involved. And I I mean, 
you guys in the the, the outline here, what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's it's going to come up, but I don't see another way other than water boiling over if we don't possibly look at going down that road. Well, I would say based on what you've described, we're definitely a little bit ahead of the game there. Now, not not that we've got it all right and everything's just clicking along because we still have issues with, um, you know, the way even people are categorized and 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 treated in some cases. And I'm not these are not blanket statements. So if you know if I say this, don't think I'm, I'm talking about every public land hunter. I'm talking about every big landowner. I'm talking about every, you know because. There's there's everybody in between, but um, you know we we've put ourselves into a situation where you know you uh, you almost uninvite someone. I had somebody email me uh, yesterday, the day before, that had listened to the podcast and had been to Arkansas before, had a terrible experience, uh, so bad that that he even bailed on his trip with the outfitter to go try public land was totally met with, with resistance and basically don't, don't come around here anymore uh, kind of deal (laughs) to where, I mean, you're like, what do you think Kansas can do to, to reform this or structure this or what can be done to help the situation? Well, I mean, we've kind of already hit it on a little bit, right? It, it starts with data. Um, We, they have no idea the amount of, and this goes for the deer hunting too, really. I mean, that's a whole nother rant that if a whitetail wasn't so resourceful and strong, we'd have already mauled them 10 years ago. But um, I think it starts with data. Okay. Cause you got to know how many people's coming in and then you got to put a value. And uh, the other thing, you know, we haven't, it's a whole nother can of worms. We have no idea how many birds are harvested in Kansas. And I mean none. They may tell you that they do, but when I can call an outfitter and they kill 7,500 birds a year, none of that is getting reported because they're never at, they don't have to. Um, so I, I think you got to start with some data, but then the next step is you've got to raise the barrier of entry. You've got to make the riffraff go the riffraff will go away with organization let me think how i can delicately word this there's a lot of the same type of personalities that are attracted to being a waterfowl outfitter because of the same satisfactions and characteristics that appeal to them okay in in our area i'm not saying that about arkansas because i know you have some of it but when you have family traditions and places that are like to me that's just incredible in in a just awesome situation we don't have that it's all fly-by-night stuff out here largely brad you're going to speak with brad he is a gem a rare uh diamond in the rough that's out here that's doing it his own way and i can't speak highly enough about it but man i think you got to organize them you've got to raise the barrier of entry and then i gotta think that it just makes sense to that's it's another delicate conversation but we got to know how much money is coming in and getting paid to to farmers and to landowners not from a sense that we're trying to skim off of it 
but your residents and your other people are losing two to three times. Like my game wardens are getting their budgets cut. Okay. We're losing game wardens every day to other States because we just won't pay them anything, but we're leaving so much money on the table. Like guys, let's be honest. If you can afford a $8,000 deer tag, you don't think they would pay 1200 bucks for a guaranteed tag every year and not have to mess with the draw. Like that's a no brainer. Right. And our current tag is like 400 bucks, but we, we just got to, we've got to organize and we've got to figure out how to make that transaction. I mean, let's be honest. Are we, what we're doing now, is it worse than the market hunting days? I mean, cause to me it is with how you pressure the resource, how they're constantly molested, how you can have eight high school kids getting paid nothing and doing a thousand miles every other day on their vehicle. Like that stuff's got to stop, man. Like it's just, it's just got to get organized. And I think when you organize these people, you're going to weed a lot of them out because they can't run a business. They can run a cash cartel and be competitive and, you know, figure out how to play the game within the game. But, and you, I'd love to hear your guys' opinions because you see a lot of the same thing, but I'm just passionate about getting it right before it's too late. Yeah, and I, I, uh, you know, I kind of speak for Kaysen, but I know we share a lot of the same, same thoughts and same uh, theories on all this as to what you just said, and and we we definitely cannot cannot allow it to be just the wild wild west and kind of brush it off as like it's it, it it's not really not that big a factor because it is we're we're already seeing it with with white fronts here um that you know associates with the amount of pressure um it's squeezing out the the regular guy like we talked about it's just a lot lot to it uh, not as prevalent maybe on the duck side but um it's it's definitely a, a candidate to be reined in and, and neither one of us are big rules and regulations guys and fee guys and all that but there's got to be some somewhere that that creates a uh, a barrier to entry beyond a $25 fee. Well, um, yeah. And and if you ask, and, and Brent, if you ask guys like Brad, and there's some other really good outfitters. I, I don't know this guy personally. I'm not going to mention his business name, but he runs a humongous deer operate. They're high-priced deer operation. It's about 8,500 to go hunt there. They kill absolute giants. It's going to be the only guy hunting that 160 acres. Like he runs one client, he has high prices. Well, he's got a couple duck impoundments and he'll run some, some high price duck hunts. I'll tell you right now, if I said, Hey, a yearly guiding outfitter license or a yearly outfitter license is going to cost 3,500 bucks. These dudes would be the first people to line up to vote yes for it because now he doesn't have high school kids. He doesn't have guys from South Carolina or. 14 hours away running guided hunts out of a motel following around his local trip. I mean, and just creating prop like you weed all that out. You generate more money that we had no idea was on the table and you, you organize and regulate your outfitters are going to be way happier. The only people that are going to bitch and moan and Casey said this earlier, were the guys that were 
you know, field hopping and not paying farmers and running four or five, eight groups a year and garvel and this dude this day. I mean, I think you get rid of all that because yeah, the barrier I, of entry is way higher. Proof of yeah. insurance, commercial hunting forms. Like I work in real estate and Kason knows this, you know this. Every property has a parcel ID. And the fact that you don't have to have a landowner signature or tenant signature pertaining to that parcel ID before you go make six grand running 12 dudes on a goose hunt. Yeah. That's, that's asinine. And then what are the problems? You know, you guys see it. Well, this guy wasn't hunting on the, he was hunting on this field and he was supposed to be on that one. Well, I got guys hunting this one that are buddies. And then the, the outfitter hunts the X when he asked permission on this field, the birds jump. Now we've got a problem. And with simple, simple solutions, do you not organize? I mean, do those problems go away and you generate a ton of money? Well, you know, you you touched on a little bit there when you kind of compared it to market hunting. And I don't I don't know that I would go that far, but I think the mindset is similar. I mean, it's easy to sit here and say that we have to be resource first. And a lot of people are, you know, a lot of the good ones are resource first. They think about that stuff, but not everyone does. There's a whole, you know maybe a majority of people there's a whole lot of people out there that are you know pile pick harvest first social media and all that stuff you know they're not they're not in it for the right reason so they're not considering the impact of what they're doing and and as we stated before i i'm not for raising taxes or more government oversight that's that never really works out the way we want it to but i don't see any other way to make people resource first other than provide some structure to this industry that we've created. And and we've been at it for 70 years. This is not new, but it has changed drastically. And I think that that the reform that we're talking about is necessary because when you're not resource first, you are dangerously close to the mentality we had in market hunting. Yeah. Well, like in Kansas, we, I don't know. Like if you said in 1999, how many waterfowl outfitters there were in Kansas. I I mean, I'll honestly say it was it had to have been maybe a dozen, like maybe two dozen at the most, spread across this huge landscape. And realistically, that was probably one guy taking eight, six, eight different groups of four to five guys hunting over shell decoys in a pond. Guys, I mean, what we're doing, I mean, you guys saw the famous one, 54 dudes on a spec hunt. Like, how is that? It, it wasn't. that Every federal violation possible happened on that day. You know, that, taking 54 people on a spec hunt. Well, I mean, we're doing the same thing on this massive scale. We got outfitters now running three groups a day up here of 10 people. Do the math on that. That's 650 a day. Yeah. So yeah. like, I mean, I I just, we have no idea. The other thing, and Kaysen said this, like with the market hunting thing, th- this made me think of this, this explosion has happened in such a short time frame that we have no data on it. But yet I can tell you the impact in a three to five year experience of how the birds have changed so much you wouldn't believe it 
And no just since 2018. And I'm talking crazy stuff. Like yeah. Lee speaks about how Canada has changed. Well, it's because we've Americanized it. 100%. Yeah. And yeah. that in itself, like, and if I took you guys, you all, I, I've heard about 1999. And when was your other big year in Arkansas here recently where everybody raves about? 99 and 2000 were the two big ones. Those okay. Were a million mallard seasons. So, so ours in my area was 2013. 2015 was another good one when I shot the hybrid on film. You guys have probably yep. seen the video. Uh, but, but 2013, we had 150,000 mallards in a five mile by five mile area on the Arkansas River in my county. Myself and one other person were the only people hunting them. I'm not kidding. I was on the road every night with a bird biologist taking photos of them. Baffled. There hasn't been that congregation since. And quickly after that, that area is completely exploited, raped, pillaged, you name it. It is molested. A goose gets up off of a sand pit up there and flies four miles in the air and looks around and goes, what do I do? Yeah. And I used to be able to let birds sit for five to seven days at a time before I'd go hunt them up there. But <laughs> now it takes a snowstorm or a northwest with a wind chill of about 10 degrees to get a mallard in my county to go dry feed in daylight. Five years ago, I was field hunting them in the evenings, 12 to 15 times a year. Yeah, it's crazy. That fast. That fast. Yeah, we're, we're seeing some of the same. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild how fast it has shifted. Um, and, and people, you know, want to blame so many other things than, than looking in the mirror. But, uh, but yeah, so man, this this episode was awesome. Um, being able to kind of compare and contrast what you see over there because you know everybody everybody in Arkansas is assuming they know everything about Kansas because it's got to be just like Arkansas. But it's you know in ways it is, and in other ways it's not. But um, but yeah, we we typically wrap this up with our guests of asking them, you know, one thing they would change if they could change one thing about modern day duck hunting. What it, would it be? Now I'm going to challenge you a little bit. And you may take you a second to think of it, but what's one thing you would change that you haven't talked about already? Let me let me let me take a deep breath and I'll think about it. <laughs> um, we've got to evaluate our why, our mentorship, and why are we doing this? And you guys had one of the best podcast episodes. I was screaming when it was talking about the 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 hashtags of like grind them and pay the rent. Like I was fighting mad, man, dude, I'd have ran through the wall. Like I was <laughs> like, y y if, y if you sold sports jerseys, I was about to buy five of them because yeah. I just, my inner circle, we've never been about that. Um, I've been blessed and social media has ruined a lot of things for me. Like I just lose a lot of respect for people's shallowness to not understand one the resource two the heritage and i think that's why me and you've had such a great relationship as you've been this historian in the grand prairie book like i can't commend 
you guys enough for making those projects because I'm an old Renaissance, old soul kind of guy out here. And like, I'm just shoulder to shoulder with flat bills wanting to be the next social media sensation. Like it's nauseating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a long answer to that, but it, no, that's it, a good point though. And, and no, I think you're kind of in the weeds, target. but it just, I don't know how we use our resources to get that out there. I try every day. I'm pitching it to multi-million dollar corporations and they all turn a blind eye. But, you know, I, maybe the responsibility is on myself or, or small grassroots movements at a time. I just, I don't know, man. I don't know the answer to that, but I just don't like the direction that the machine is getting steered. Yeah, yeah. I think Casey and I would, would align with that. And I think it's part of the reason we we do this podcast is to to show a different angle to all this versus the the stuff that gets two thousand two thousand likes. But that's where we are right now. We just we do. We gotta do these little just try to make little initiatives and little pushes and and make some things happen because uh we've got a ways to go to gain gain back some ground in this sport that does have this amazing heritage and and you know, such a, such much, so much more to it than piling up a bunch of ducks and taking a picture of them. And that's your, that's your, uh, that's your feed. That's all it's on your feed. And, and that's, that's tough. That's tough. But yeah, we're going to wrap this one up because we try to not drag you guys through this too long, but uh, this is a great conversation and we were really appreciate, appreciate Drew coming on and we'll try to do it again. Maybe next time be able to have Brad Harris on too. And uh, really bounce some some stuff off because looking at his stuff and based on what you've said, he would he would align in this conversation pretty well. But uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Of course, appreciate our sponsors that make all this happen. Follow us on social media at The Standard Sportsman. And be sure to subscribe and give us some feedback on your favorite podcast application. Thanks. The Standard Sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. And over the last 50 years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sika Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper, vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable, removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds, let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now, one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and, like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed.